Well, we are continuing on today with our series of messages on the famous last words of Jesus. These seven last statements that Jesus spoke from the cross as he hung there in the final hours of his life. And so far we've heard him pray, Father, forgive them. We've heard him answer prayer, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we listened to him giving form to a new family. As I mentioned earlier, dear woman, here is your son. And to his disciple, here is your mother. Giving us to one another in a sense. And today we come to the fourth word. Uh, an important word. The, the middle word of, of these seven The hinge, we might say, on which all the other words swing. A word, a statement that gives context to all the other words and, in a sense, holds all the other words together. One commentator went as far as to say that this word is the gospel, the good news, at its deepest He says, it reveals better than any other sentence in the gospel who Jesus is and what he does. It's a remarkable word. And yet, as we read it in just a moment, you will recognize and I think admit with me, at least at some level, that it is a difficult word. It's, you're, as you're going to see, it's a difficult word to understand. Even those who had gathered at the cross and who heard Jesus speak this word in the moment failed to recognize what it was he was talking about, failed to comprehend what it was that he was referring to, failed to grasp the significance of what Jesus was saying. And over the centuries, even still, since Jesus has had spoken this this word, it it remains in many ways an an enigma, a mystery to those who hear it and try to respond to it and relate to it. A word that um, even if we do begin to understand it at some level, remains difficult for us now not to understand perhaps, but, but to hear. One has said that the fourth word couldn't have been the first word we might not have stayed around to listen to the other six. (laughs) But it is a good word. And so let's hear it together from God's word. Matthew chapter 27, to set the context, verses 41 through 49. Have it on the screen. Love to invite you to stand with me as I read these verses. Matthew 27, I'll begin at verse 41 and... Read to verse 49. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. They filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, all of us, I think, at some level know what it means and feels like to be alone. Uh, Maybe some of us feel like we could raise our hand and especially attest or witness to that feeling. This past winter in... um, during high school basketball season, that's how I know, uh, kind of marked this event. We were at a Dos Pogos high school basketball game, and um, after the game, we, I had my whole family there with me, and after the game, my daughter Katie, as she likes to do, kind of got as close as she could to the cheerleaders, and um, she was hanging out with, with some of these guys, Miranda and Angelique, and just trying to kind of get them to notice her and... You know, just kind of watch how they do things as big high school cheerleader girls. And as she drifted closer to them, Kyla and I and Thomas just kind of ourselves drifted. We weren't trying to be very real ornery, but we just kind of drifted away ourselves to a part of the gym where we could see her, but she couldn't really see us. Because she was out of it. I mean, she was so focused and dialed in. And, we, and so we observed her from that vantage point. And, and, and she waited, and she watched, and as they, the cheerleaders kind of talked to each other and, you know, to different people, and then as she waited there, finally they noticed her and came over to talk to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Angelique, if you were here, for noticing my daughter. And they came over to talk to her and, and said, you know, hi, Katie, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. And Katie, you could just see the, the, you know, the look on her face, the expression, just so just enamored and blown away by the fact that I'm having a conversation with these cheerleaders and they look so great and I'm a part of it. And, and, and then they said, well, thanks for coming. She kind of, you know, thanks. And, and then they turned away and Katie, in the midst of her joy, suddenly turned around to look for her family. <laughs> and she didn't see us, of course. And I, from the, just the short distance I was away from her, I saw in that moment a look of terror, really, a look of fear, a look of, I've been so high, and now I am so alone. I don't know where my, my people are. I'm here all by myself. They, they left me, perhaps. Who, who knows? And in that moment, I just captured that vision of her, and I, I ran quickly to her and hugged her and told her I was sorry, but how interesting it was to, you know, watch her interact with the people. And, and, uh, and yet, it just again, just kind of sinking in, and, and, and that's just a small example, but perhaps you know the feeling that Katie felt in that, even for that split second, I'm alone. We're not talking about the kind of, of, you know, there's good and bad kinds of alone, right? So when we talk about this alone, we're not talking about the kind of 
you know, alone time that so many of us long for, right? That alone time on a beach somewhere or curled up next to a, a fire with a, with a good book, you know, that, that, we're not talking about that kind of alone time. We're not either talking about another kind of good alone that is a, the spiritual discipline of solitude that we all need. We, we need to have times where, as Jesus did, we pull away to quiet places, to alone places where we can reflect and where we can ponder and where we can um, kind of respond to the quick pace of our lives and our culture and, and, and enter into communion with the Lord. And so we need these kind of alone times. Those are what we might call the good kinds of alone. But this other kind of alone that I'm talking about that I think Katie was experiencing, what we've experienced so many times, are, is not the, these are the difficult times of being alone. These are, the, these are the times where we're experiencing isolation. We're experiencing separation. And perhaps even we're experiencing at some level this sense of abandonment, of completely being left to our own selves. These are the times when we would much rather be with people. <laughs> Even if it was just one person, than be alone. The, the times when we are alone, perhaps not by choice, but by circumstance. The times when we may even still be surrounded by activity and surrounded by people. Do you know what I'm talking about? But you still feel alone, even in the midst of that kind of context or circumstance. For some of us, our aloneness that we've experienced or perhaps continue to experience stems from the loss of a friendship, from a job, from a a relationship, a marriage, a a loved one. Perhaps our aloneness, uh, our sense of aloneness arises from our own busyness or from our own stress or from a, a situation in our lives that Perhaps no one else can understand, right? You've been there where you just feel so alone in the middle of that situation. Still others, for us, our aloneness stems from or arises out of our, our own alienating choices. Some of the decisions that we've made are destructive kind of choices that have kind of set us apart. We know what it is to feel alone. And, and then I was thinking, just even beyond our own individual aloneness, we know even as a people, as humanity in the world in which we live, what it feels like to be alone at times. Do, do, we, do we not, as, as people, when tragedy strikes, when horrific acts hit, when we're victims of terrorist attacks or natural disasters like we so frequently read about and are even experiencing, when there's famine and when there's disease, uh, hunger like the teens will learn about and be reminded of tonight where at the clip of 25,000 people per day dying due to these kinds of factors, we, we perhaps at times feel like maybe as a people we've been forgotten, <laughs> like maybe we're alone in all of this. We might not say that, but maybe it's what we feel. Maybe that's why, though it's a difficult word to understand, it is this fourth word of Jesus from the cross that we most identify with. 
I was talking with a friend of mine, not in our church this week, and I was telling him, expressing some of the, actually some of the challenge that I was experiencing as I thought about trying to preach on this fourth word from Jesus. And he said, oh, I've got that one down. I know what it is to be forsaken, to be abandoned by God. I, I know that one. And, and maybe many of us would, would speak with this person. And we would, we would agree. We have this sense that like Jesus, we know what it is in our lives to at least have this feeling of being forsaken, of being abandoned. And so it is this, this hard word, this difficult word of Jesus that speaks to us and perhaps even speaks for us as we, as we listen to it again uh, today. One writer had noted that it was the screams of rage and pain and despair from the cross that made crucifixions so gruesome. And yet, he says, surprisingly, Jesus' words from the cross are not rage, but prayer. And at some level, we identify with this prayer. We make this prayer our own. And these words can even begin to sound like a comforting cry for us in the midst of whatever aloneness we feel. You can go to that first uh, or the next slide, Laura. Just this idea of a comforting cry that we can hear these words of Jesus to be. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had been, remember the context, he had been at this point um, kind of devoid of really any human uh, support at this point from at least the time of his, of his trials. And some might say even from the point of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he'd asked his disciples to pray with them and they couldn't even stay awake with him for, for one hour. He really had been lacking throughout this whole journey any, any substantial human support, but he had at least always been able to this moment to trust in and depend on and lean on the presence of his loving Father. But now, as the darkness, as we read, gathered all around him and settled upon the earth as if the earth itself was going into mourning... <laughs> For what was about to happen, Jesus experiences this, this, this loss. Even the presence of his loving father had departed from him. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My Aramaic is not real strong, but some uh, have suggested that, they, well, they've pointed out that these are the, this is the only place in his gospel where Matthew quotes Jesus in his speaking Aramaic. This was the language that Jesus spoke. But, but most of the time throughout the New Testament and all the Gospels, and especially in Matthew, he's quoted in Greek. It's the one point where, where Matthew quotes him in his spoken language as if to say what Jesus says here <clears throat> is so important, so sacred, that I want to give it to you in his very own words. And so we hear it. Any Bible scholars or those of you who have done a little study on this passage of Scripture know that, that these words are a quote, a quote from Psalm 22. Jesus is, is quoting from, from the Psalms here. The Psalms, the prayer book for good Jewish people and good Christian people. And Jesus was here quoting from the very opening lines of that Psalm. It seems that, 
that Jesus was doing what many of us would do. When we come to the end of our rope, when we come to the very bottom, when we come to the greatest place of distress and despair, he was reaching you know, where, where no longer there were any sophisticated words that he might be able to come up with in that moment. He was reaching to what he knew, reaching to the depths of his memory, grasping and grabbing onto what he remembered that had been drilled into him in a sense. Can I make a little case for scripture memorization while we're here at this moment? Parents, when your kids bring home those passages from Sunday school, go ahead and learn them with them. And maybe even, you know, a a day a week, maybe we choose to to memorize a small portion of Scripture as opposed to reading a a larger portion of Scripture. Obviously, this is what Jesus had done in these moments, dug into the recesses of his mind and into his memory. The Scripture he chooses, however, is a bit surprising. Is it not? I mean, he missed it by a psalm. As far as I can kind of can kind of see it, I mean, Psalm 23 would have been the one that we would have expected or hoped for Jesus to have quoted from in these difficult moments. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and and we would all yell and scream and cheer and say, that's our Jesus. Psalm 23, right on his lips, he quotes it. But he doesn't quote from Psalm 23. He quotes from Psalm 22. In fact, look at the next words. I think I have for you verses 1 and 2. He, he, this is what he's quoting. This is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't get much better from there. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Many have tried to kind of lay Jesus on the therapist's couch and analyze him and psychologize him and try to interpret psychologically what he is saying here. But I I really want to be slow to do that, honestly. And can we at least just simply say here in these moments and know for certain that, that Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 and not from Psalm 23 because Psalm 22 more perfectly captures and expresses what Jesus was feeling in those moments. The sense that Jesus had in this experience. This experience of aloneness and abandonment. Separation. Forsaken. Jesus on the cross. And yet, here's a small caveat. Listen to this. Important to note that the one who cries out in anguish and in distress to God, and, and, and by so doing, catch this, by so doing appears, I believe, to give us kind of some permission and even a pattern for how we might interact with God in those moments of 
great distress and even great despair, still does in fact cry out to God. I think we need to, we need to hear that and be reminded of that. This one who cries out with, with, with what sounds like a crisis of faith, great doubt, still cries out to God. And in so doing, perhaps more than even a pattern or permission, he, he, he gives us this, this, this sense that this, this great demonstration of what real faith really is, what genuine faith truly is, trusting in God, crying out to God, even when we can't see him, even when we can't feel him. And I just think that as we hear that cry, we can gain some sense of comfort, some sense of, of, of faith, some sense of permission and pattern in knowing that even in our darkest hours, we can still cry out in faith as Jesus has shown for us. Now, it's been noted that perhaps, we don't know this for sure, but perhaps, and it wouldn't, we wouldn't put it past him that Jesus had in mind um, a little bit more of Psalm 22 than what he particularly quoted because the next verses go like this. Let me read these for you. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And I just believe that that, that whether or not Jesus had those particular words in mind still as he said these, that by actually praying this prayer at all, he was living out these words. And in this darkest hour, he was putting his trust in one that he could not see. And so though we've never walked Jesus' path, we do know at some level what it feels like to be maybe far from God in moments and for him to be distant from us. We do know what it is to experience pain and suffering, and for it to seem like God is not responding to us the way that we think he should be right now? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And I simply stand back from the cross and from these words, and I hope you'll say with me, thank you, Jesus, for the example of your faith amidst your suffering, for the example of your trust amidst your aloneness. This Jesus, in these moments, at, at another level, is demonstrating that, that, that not only is, does he have faith, but, but he is faithfully willing to step into the, the, the most significant point of identification with humanity that he could ever step into. Um, he, in the garden, he said, he said, take this cup from me, if you will. And yet now on the cross, he is, he is drinking from the very dregs of that cup. Some of you like coffee. 
few coffee drinkers. Have you ever noticed that, that you know, that the waitress is walking around with a, a pot of coffee and, and it's kind of near the bottom? You know, what, what do you normally say? Ah, I get a fresh pot. Something like that. And, and the reason why is because you'd rather have, not have the waitress kind of pour in your cup. And, and it's not just the drops of coffee at that point, it's what, it's the, it's the grounds, it's the sediments, it's the, it's the things that have formed there at the bottom and then have come through the process and you're getting all of that right into your, you know, $3 cup of coffee or whatever. <laughs> so normally it's, you know, can I get a fresh pot? Well, in, in these moments on the cross, Jesus is saying, I am, there's no fresh pot for me, I am I am drinking from the very dregs of humanity to the very limit, to the very uttermost of who I have been called to be. Experiencing a separation from God so that the world might never have to. The last dregs. This is the lowest point separation and abandonment from the Father, Jesus showing his love for us by giving completely of himself, going to the utter depths. And so in this cry, we, we have to again hear the depths of Jesus' love for us. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Because... I'm demonstrating my love. Look at this passage from 1 Peter. Peter kind of commenting, reflecting, uh, teaching about this very scene. Says it like this. When they hurled their their insults at him, he did not retaliate. I stopped there for just a moment. Maybe you noticed, and just setting the context, those beginning verses, the the, the people gathered there at at the scene the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. And, and one person I read just pulled this out. I thought so interestingly that, that just as the devil tempted and mocked Jesus at the beginning of his ministry with three temptations, so here at the end of his ministry, leading right to his death, there are others who mock him with three separate mockings, each inviting Jesus to be or to do something that he wasn't called to do. He could have called, some of you may have heard the song, 10,000 angels, but he chose to die alone for you and for me. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Is that it? Yeah. In his body, he chose to bear our sin. To enter into this moment, not necessarily because he had to, but because he wanted to, he became totally alone so that you and I would never have to be totally alone. 
by not coming down off of the cross. By choosing to remain in that place, Jesus proved that he really is the Savior who gives everything that he has, who goes to the very extent of who he is, who sacrifices and risks everything that he is to seek and to save the lost ones like you and me. And again, I say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. It's what we proclaim in Philippians 2. 5 through 8, just be in awe again of these words. Read them with me if you would. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's identified completely with us us in our humanity. And now in these moments, he's even willing to take a step beyond anything that we have ever experienced into the place where he would even experience the abandonment of God, the separation of the triune God, even, in those moments, just for us. Just for us. Guys, we can, we can theorize and, you know, uh, give all sorts of reasons. We can debate and we can argue about what happened on the cross, exactly how this transaction, there are, there, they call them theories of the atonement. And you can dig up seven or eight pretty good ones. And, and we can debate and and again, kind of go around as we think about these different theories of the atonement. But, but what these words invite us to do is to, again, stand back and to adore the one on the cross who would move to this place in his life and in his death simply for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you won the victory for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't stop short of going all the way, but that you drank from the very last dregs of humanity. Thank you, Jesus, for entering fully into our experience and going beyond it, that we might know salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I just kept thinking of this song title, this great old hymn that just simply says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, one last thought here, one more level that we can see going on here in this, in this simple statement, this simple phrase. And, and, and really, <clears throat> at this point, it says something that's pretty surprising or even shocking about who God is, about God the Father. And reveals to us, I think, kind of a a differentness about God than anything we have maybe ever assumed or kind of come to grips with before. These these words help us. The words of Jesus, and in particular, the phrase here is the the silence that responds, really, is the silence that speaks to us. about who God is and about what God is doing in this moment, about what it says about 
about his way in the world and, and in our lives. This silence speaks to us and tells us that God will not be kind of put in a box. A little cliche, I know, but that, that, that's, that's what it says. It won't, he won't be confined or defined or determined by what we expect him to be determined by or defined by. He doesn't, this God doesn't play to our rules. This God is not who we would be if we were God. Does that make sense? You know, if I were God, I would do it like this. Well, he doesn't do it like we would do it if we were God. Now that a little bit hard to maybe follow. But this God is different than we've imagined. This silence tells us that he's different than we've expected. And this silence reveals the depth of his grace and his goodness and his mercy to us. You see, we expect at some level for God to save Jesus, for the Father to save the Son. It's what we would do. What? Who of us would, would allow and leave our son to die such a tragic, horrific death? We anticipate God to do what we ask, to act with compassion in this moment, to act with mercy, to care, and to provide for Jesus' deepest needs, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And perhaps at some level we're even a little bit embarrassed by this God who doesn't act. In this situation. Much like, can I say, we're a little bit maybe embarrassed by this God who doesn't act in some of the other situations in our world today. Why aren't you acting, God? You're not living up to our expectations. You're not doing it. You're not playing by our rules. You're not doing it like I would do it if I were you. What we see in this silence that just really screams to us is that God does not always act the way we expect him to. Instead, he acts in ways that are always consistent with his mission and with his purpose and with his will in the world. This God will not be confined. God would never abandon his son, Right? Well, it appears that he would. If, in fact, it meant the salvation of humanity. Look at this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Listen to what God did. He made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of of God. Just leave that up there for a moment, if you will. We know from scriptures like this that, that the Father who in His holiness and in His righteousness could never be present where sin was so concentrated there on the cross as Jesus bore the sin of all of humanity that he had to remove himself, to separate himself, to abandon to this sin the one who had come just for this very purpose. Separated from his son. 
out of his love for us. Again, separated so that we might not ever be separated. Look at this from Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates, read it with me, would you? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't put this up on the screen, but I want to read this for you. This, I think, speaks so beautifully to this truth as well. Romans 8, 31 and 32, and a little bit following. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all these things? Skipping down to verse 35, he writes, and this is in response to what he has done for us. It says, who, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's silence in response to this cry. One said it like this, the God who is supposed to save is saving by not saving. He's delivering by not delivering. He's embracing forever by not embracing in this moment. I don't know if you can. I'm not sure if I can get my mind around the kind of God who would do the unthinkable. Create, it it appears by his own initiative, a a rift in the the unbreakable triune Godhead for us in his love. I, I don't think I can. And so I've kind of decided that I'm not going to try to get my mind around that. But then I'm going to kind of step back. And again, I'm going to look to this Jesus and hear his words. And I'm going to listen for the silence. And in that silence, I'm going to just simply be in awe. And I'm going to, in return, give all that I am this God who has given everything that he is for me. Thank you, God, for speaking to us in your silence. Thank you, God, that you would do anything for our salvation. Thank you, God, for affirming that you work in ways that are foreign to us, that are beyond us. Thank you for not fitting into our boxes. Thank you for saving us. Let's stand together. It's a hard word, Jesus.
It's the middle word. I agree. I'm not sure if you would have started with this word if I would have come back for the other six. It's a hinge word, and yet it's a gospel word. It's a good news word. It's a word that tells us that we too, in our distress, in our pain, in our anguish, have a, have a pattern. We have a way, we have, we have one who has set a paradigm before us that we too can cry out from the very depths of our hearts, that we too can express and know a genuine faith, even as we cry out when we don't sense you or feel you to be present. It's a word, dear Jesus, that reminds us of the depth of your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for not stopping short. Thank you, Jesus, for sustaining the abuse, for not coming down off of the cross, for not giving in to that temptation in that moment to show them what real power you had, but by staying on the cross, showing what real power is. Suffering and dying for us. Thank you, Father, for your silence in those moments that, though so painful for us to even consider and to, to, to reflect upon, even as it relates to your relationship between your Son and you, we, in great humility, say thank you. And we ask that. By your spirit, you'd give us the strength to say thank you with our lives. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing.